0: This is a special edition of Secrets of Statecraft with Andrew Roberts. I'm currently in Budapest as a visiting fellow of the Danube Institute, which is run by John O'Sullivan. And in the light of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, I thought listeners would be interested in seeing the crisis from a Central European perspective. So here's my conversation with John O'Sullivan. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm very fortunate to be here in Budapest with... John O'Sullivan, the editor of six magazines in his career, including 10 years as editor-in-chief of of National Review, but also editor of National Interest and Quadrant in Australia. An advisor to Margaret Thatcher in Downing Street, he's presently the president of the Danube Institute, an Atlanticist think tank that is conservative in politics and classically liberal in economics. He's been a voice for expanding NATO for many, many years, and the um, former executive editor, editor of Radio Free Europe. So there's one question really, um, which overrides everything else today, which is, of course, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And John will be able to give us a look into the way in which Hungarians are thinking about this, and especially the Hungarian government to which he's close. So, so John, t- tell us, you know, what, what's the feeling here in uh, Hungary?
1: I would say the principal feeling is anxiety. Um, Everybody in the region, not just in Hungary, but even the Poles, who are the most... Active and almost self-confident in the way they're dealing with the situation. Everybody in the region is conscious that this is a, an area over which tanks from other parts of the world are rolled irregularly, and before that, horses. And um, they just feel in their bones that, that there's always a danger when there is any kind of conflict um, that it's going to involve terrible destruction in in this part of the world. Now, in Buddha, in Hungary in particular um, i don 't think people outside the historical profession or the country realize just how terrible the siege of Budapest was in nine, the end of uh, beginning of thousand nine hundred and forty five It lasted three months and it was a, a terrible event for the country of course, the country suffered dreadfully from as a whole from um, the end of the war until um, until really late forty four it didn 't experience the war to any great extent and then of course uh, it felt the full force of it so people remember that here, and they remember um, what the uh, how small countries on these occasions suddenly become pawns and their interests don't count and so that's the principal feeling now there are a lot of other feelings which uh, i would say the the main one is that they would the hungarians have made a decision very clearly that they're members of nato and that's very important to them and um, on this in this crisis they have Far from, in a sense, being obstructive, they have made it plain that they would go along with whatever the majority or the unanimous opinion of NATO was. And that's very important um, for them, I think, to establish that. At the same time, they haven't wanted to go out of their way to be anti-Russian, to be anti-Putin, because the feeling of vulnerability they have. They, after all, they, have, they share a border with Ukraine.
0: And also, um, they're vulnerable in terms of oil
1: and gas, aren't they? Specifically, gas uh, to an extraordinary degree. Um, they're vulnerable in terms of energy, uh, and in in both um, gas supplies and in terms of n- nuclear uh, energy. Uh, they are vulnerable to Russia because it is Russia which has um, provided some of the finance and the expertise for building one of their and modernising one of their major power stations, packs. So there is the conscious of they are conscious of being to that extent vulnerable to Russia, and um, and, and the present prime minister, Viktor Orbán, has gone out of his way uh, to say that he would like to preserve as far as possible. Um, uh, the economic relations trade relations with russia, but he's in the end he 's always subordinated the, 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 that that interest to N- nato 's interests in uh, and the, unanim- the un- unanim- unanimity of nato
0: and um, with regard to this great issue of arms being taken across the Hungarian border into ukraine nato arms um he has uh, said he doesn't want that to, to happen. He's been criticised very um, uh, roundly in the West for that. But it strikes me, speaking to a, uh, a member of the Hungarian government um, just earlier today, that they do have an argument, don't they, in that if the Russians uh, essentially uh, counterattacked, uh, it would be Hungarian people in South, uh, ethnic Hungarians at least, in, so- in sub Carpathia who would bear the brunt of that.
1: Um, yes, they are concerned about that. Um, the same Prime Minister at an earlier stage, of course, did um, refuse the Russians uh, the ability to transit through uh, Hungary back uh, in the in the balkan wars and um, at that time, that was a fairly bold thing to do um, now, um, I would say myself. That the Hungarian uh, he he does represent public opinion in not wanting to go far as far as the polls have done. And this is
0: sorry to butt in, but this is interestingly historically, isn't it? Because because Hungary was invaded by Russia in 1956, um, the Poles didn't have the same equivalent until Gdańsk uh, in the early 1980s of that kind of way in which you are maltreated, like the Czechs did, of course, in 1968.
1: So, so in a sense, it is interesting that the Hungarians are being so much more
0: pragmatic than the
1: Poles. Well, you may remember in 1956, the joke that went round uh, Europe about uh, the different attitudes of the Soviet satellites was that the Hungarians had behaved like Poles, the Poles had behaved like Czechs and the Czechs had behaved like swine because, of course, the Czechs were the most subservient at that stage. Um, they changed their minds very dramatically 12 years later. But at that stage, they were the most subservient of the, of the satellites to Russia. So in a sense, um, you know, people change their attitudes because of changing circumstances um, uh, and because their interests dictate um, that that well, in the case of Hungary, it wants very much to be part of the West. It is uh, absolutely determined to stay in the NATO camp, but it will not be pressing as hard as the Poles um, for aid to Ukraine. Um, and that's... Lethal aid, lethal. yes. Lethal and, and by the way, they have, of course, done a great deal and are doing a great deal um, to bring in refugees. So... Um, for, and, and giving humanitarian aid. Oh, yeah, that's right. People have been brought in. I mean, I, I know people here in Budapest who've arranged to, um, to look after a family coming over the border from Ukraine. And um, I think we... We do not really recognize the nervousness that a lot of this crisis creates. I mentioned um, in particular, I'll mention one point in particular. There is great anxiety, and maybe you discussed this with the Hungarian uh, friend you were talking about a moment ago great anxiety about borders being changed by force. Or even more borders being changed without universal agreement to change borders, and the reason is that it still remains a part of the world in which it was was said at the time of the first war um, that England, uh, every England has its Ireland and every Ireland has its Ulster, and uh, so people just don't want that Pandora's box to be opened again.
0: No, and but even though Hungary, of course, was the biggest loser in terms of uh, territory, the, the Treaty. Of- of Trianon uh, essentially ripped um, Hungary to pieces. And, um, and so though that's the reason, of course, it's Trianon, isn't it? That these 150,000 or so Hungarians are in Subcarpathia in Ukraine rather than in Hungary.
1: That is right, and last year was the hundredth anniversary of Trianon, and it was celebrated very mournfully, but celebrated, so to speak, uh, here in Hungary. But at the same time, um, the Hungarian government, I think, made it plain to the Romanian government, which is their, the, so to speak, principal antagonist historically on this question, that they did not want to make it in any way a revanchist occasion. No. That they were they were accepting entirely the status quo. Is
0: there there any irredentism in
1: subcarpathia? Um, I couldn't talk to that particular uh, point very confidently but um, there is some irredentism in Hungarian society. Um, The problem if you're in a Hungarian minority in Slovakia or Romania or anywhere else uh, is that you, you do not want to create difficulties for your own community um if you hold those kind of opinions and most of the hungarian parties uh, ethnic parties and in this part of the world they outside hungary tend to be um quite well pacific and to represent the interests culturally of the of their constituents but not to want to go beyond that to make historical changes which makes
0: perfect sense uh, for them um you, uh, as I mentioned earlier, were executive editor of Radio Free Europe. Um, in a sense, you must have been, all the time that you were working for Radio Free Europe, um, you must have been thinking about the possible danger of uh, Russia um, either invading Ukraine or actually uh, uh, invading a NATO country. Um, what um, was, Were you expecting this? Were you assuming that it was one day going to happen? Or, or do you think that Putin has made the most appalling uh, uh, mistake by doing
1: it? Well, I was. I joined RFRL in um, at the end of two thousand and seven, uh, and even as, when I joined it, um, I, all my colleagues were telling me about the way in which the uh, Radio Liberty, the Russian service, um, was finding it life more and more difficult. Um, they were, for example, uh, a lot of the uh, constituent radio stations which took our material um, were finding that you know they the food inspection Would come in to see a half-eaten sandwich and immediately declare um, a hundred thousand ruble fine or whatever for, uh, and that kind of thing, and a bit worse than that, people being taken for a car ride and threatened. Now, um, that was the beginning, and it ratcheted up very considerably in two thousand and eight. Sorry, sorry. Threatened where in? In Moscow. Oh yeah, Well, in the Soviet, in, in Russia. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in other words, um, our material used to get out by being accepted by various stations. I mean, we had our own, um, uh, we had our own short wave uh, radio too, and we had a very good presence on um, uh, the internet. But but of course, we wanted uh, radio stations to take our material. We had partners, and they became they came under the, under. Under pressure at the very least, and sometimes in the more than pressure now that was before the Rus- the Russian invasion of um, georgia and, um, and and that which occurred in the same year as the collapse of the'm sorry of the um, uh, the crash uh, in america financial crash that to get to those two things together had a tremendously Unnerving impact on western um, and uh, East European um, governments about the confidence of the post cold war and you may remember two thousand and nine the new um, newly elected President Obama received a, a letter from twenty three um, east European leaders, Central European leaders, and intellectuals um, appealing to him to devote um, uh, America's attention much more to this part of the world, to strengthen um, America's alliance with this part of the world, um, to make it plain that they had no... would have no truck with Russia's new aggressiveness, which, of course, um, uh, was seen in in particularly in Georgia.
0: How did um, Obama respond to that?
1: Well, I would say that uh, um, (laughs) he sent Joe Biden over on fundamentally a soothing exercise. Um, What's more important, perhaps, than that is that Gerhard Schroeder the then even then the former chancellor um had issued a statement appealing to the administration really to pay no attention to what all of these people had said and um and it, one has to say he didn't pay much attention because um you had the withdrawal of the um, um anti-missile missiles in uh, the czech republic and and uh, and Poland, and not only that, but in the case of the Poles, um, the uh, announcement they received very short sh- shrift on this, very short notice, and um, that the announcement um, was made on the anniversary of the Soviet invasion of Poland in 1939. So they didn't even do elementary diplomatic um, work to, uh, to, uh, to, to, in a sense, take these decisions and then impose them on their allies. So. So you'd have to say that nervousness in in, in this part of the world increased substantially both because of what um, Russia was doing in Georgia, because there was a lack of faith all of a sudden in Western economics and the uh, market system. And finally, because the American government was obviously more concerned with its own great reset with Moscow than it was with looking after people who in a way felt themselves to be america's most loyal allies in europe and the, the
0: reset obviously now has collapsed um it had collapsed earlier. It had collapsed um, at the time of the crime- Crimea in 2014, yeah. essentially, didn't it? But yeah. um, as a lifelong supporter and actually uh, a you know, executive uh, member of organisations that want to expand NATO, what's your feeling today with regard to Finland and Sweden tiptoeing towards the possibility?
1: Well, I think that that is going to depend on the outcome of the war in Ukraine. Um, not my view of it, so to speak, but the pros- the, the likelihood or uh, prospects for this kind of thing. Um, what is and must be alarming to Putin is all of a sudden, all of the uh, countries which he wanted to keep out of NATO and wanted to keep, I suppose, in a sense, in a reasonably friendly relationship with Russia, are all now declaring they want the protection of NATO. And that should make people realize exactly why this part of the world wanted to join NATO in the first place. Uh, and I would also say going back to the period um, in, from... from uh, Really the early uh, 19, 1990s the the West was not going around encouraging people to join. It was dealing with countries which wanted to join and then imposing tests which you, they had to pass before they could they could become members of NATO. the eu was later in the in the first part of the '90s it was NATO, which was the provider of security, yes, but also the provider of demands for democracy and uh, both economic and political reforms you can 't join NATO was the theme unless you have a genuine democracy unless uh, unless you have a, you're moving towards a, a market economy which both of, both Sweden and um, and Finland very much are well, of course uh, they have that already
0: yeah so i mean they could they could tick every box if nato wanted them in but it would require therefore a very long nato russian border in
1: finland that's right and one of the points that um, Uh, uh, One of the points that Putin, for example, makes uh, is that he was one of several post-Soviet Russian leaders who actually wanted to join NATO. Now, uh, I remember that quite well. I I, I, was in... I don't think Russia would have necessarily passed all those tests, though, well, would it? Well, well, that, of course, is one of the problems, but it's also one of the advantages. You see, obviously, all the new members of NATO in Central and Eastern Europe, and then further out in Eastern Europe, all of them regarded NATO as a protection against Russia. That was the end. They didn't take for granted Russia was down and out forever. They knew it would come back, and they worried that they would then be drawn in once more into some kind of subservient relationship with them. And that's why they wanted to get in. So the new members would not be in favor of Russia coming in. The other thing is you couldn't have Russia in until Russia gave up its essentially... um, greater Russia, neo-imperial mindset. And that was that would have been a stopping thing. But I believe we should have responded more warmly to the idea and made plain that in the long run, when the rise of China made Russia more willing to abandon the neo-imperial mindset and the other countries more understanding of why it was important to get Russia in, I think we should have been stronger in holding out um, NATO membership as, a, as a, a, an a long t- for Russia as a long term aim of, of the West.
0: But now we are very much in the neo-imperialist uh, mindset. He would like to absorb uh, Ukraine clearly, possibly also Belarus. Um, and um, And so... Dealing with the position that we're in, actually, let's go back because this is a history podcast, essentially, to his belief, to Putin's belief, as he set out in that five thousand word essay last July about the um, about Ukraine essentially not being a real country, but instead being part of um, of Greater Russia. Now. He obviously believes this. Um, a number of Russians believe it. Uh, historians have taken it to pieces. But nonetheless, um, it's, a, uh, it's a strong, I think, in some places on the American right, that there are such places of uh, things as spheres of influence that Ukraine uh, was in the Russian sphere of influence and, as they keep saying, you shouldn't poke the bear. Against that, surely, there's the fact that Ukraine has been an independent and sovereign nation for 30 years, and it's not a question of poking the bear, it's a question of, of listening to what a sovereign, independent nation thinks.
1: That's right, and the divisions... Um, I've just added to your uh, changes in, uh, in recent times. The divisions within Ukraine in terms of national loyalty, are you or you, you believe Ukraine is your nation... Um, Some, for a long time, fairly large number, never a majority, obviously. The election results show that um, and the referendum results. Um, A a large number of Russian speakers regarded Russia as their country and Ukraine was where they happened to be being being deposited by history. But that has now changed completely. Um, As a result of Russian policy and the hostility of um, uh, Putin in person, personally, to the idea of Ukrainian nationality. And the, now the invasion and the terrible tactics that the Russian Russian army is using, which complete um, complete uninterest in saving human life, um, shelling, um, destroying whole cities, um, massacring civilians. There's no longer, I think, much genuine pro-Russian feeling in in any part of Ukraine. There will be some, but not not historically important. So, if he manages to win this war in the crude sense of occupying the country, um, he will be occupying a country which hates him, of 40 million people, um, enormous, second biggest country in Europe, second only to Russia. One cannot see that ending well, because even if the West were to decide, and I don't think it would, that it would offer no help or assistance to that, to an insurgency, there'd be one anyway, and incidentally, if you look back at the end of the Second World War, the insurgency in countries like Lithuania uh, and Poland, to some extent, carried on for a very long time, for a decade or so. And and in, and in Ukraine, in fact, that was I carrying see. on until 1947, 1948. Well, it, and I would say probably longer, but be in the sense that uh, there were still people fighting, um, uh, hiding out now. I don't think I'm very nervous of the idea, Andrew, that in a sense, we should fight to the last Ukrainian or the last Georgian. Or, and so I, um, my tendency would be not to want to encourage insurgencies. But there are some times the insurgencies don't need encouragement, um, but well, they need, they may need help and so on. Well they need ammunition in the uh, in the great phrase of uh, president Zelensky well, well exactly, and there 's no way that the, the, this insurgency, if it were to suffer apparent military defeat, would die. it will carry on, and that 's something which makes. Um, the this particularly tragic occasion because one can see one possible result is a a war not endless it would end uh, probably after 15 or 20 years uh, but enormous numbers of deaths and uh, destruction in the meantime. as
0: you see from the second World War, the reprisals that the nazis carried out against uh, the sort of the mayor and so on of of a town where a where a german soldier was killed um Oh, and mentioning Germany, uh, the the model democracy that is modern day Germany, at least, um, hasn't it been extraordinary the way in which neo pacifism in Germany, which has been around for you know best part of three quarters of a century, has just evaporated
1: overnight? This is obviously the result of the that people are actually watching. In the whole of Europe, we are looking at what a modern war in modern Europe is like. And it is absolutely horrible. Uh, and it is, involves a series of terrible crimes. Uh, crimes against humanity in the technical sense, but a broader sense. That this kind of dis- destruction of people's lives and opportunities and hopes... Uh, is uh, itself um, uh, bound to be uh, a historical crime of of great importance, which will have lots of impact down the years. So um, now we see this, now we see what it is actually physically like. I think that has had a huge impact around the world, but particularly in Europe, rightly so. But we must ask ourselves this. Will that feeling persist Long after the shooting stops, the answer. The, I would like to think it would, um, and I think it, it will to some extent. But it cannot be at the fever pitch which it is at the moment. Down the years, it it, it will go away. The question is whether or not political opinion in a substantial way in Germany has shifted permanently to I don't want to say a Cold War mentality but it's the easiest shorthand for saying it. We're faced with an an enemy um, which is determined to change our lives for the worse and the the Ukraine are the people who are suffering the really sharp end of it but the rest of us are going to suffer to some extent as well and we therefore have to keep ourselves armed and vigilant. That's the state of mind which it's very hard to sustain particularly on the left and in and after all the left is very powerful in Germany uh, and the broad appeal of the left's view of foreign policy namely we're a country of commercial pacifism appeals to business and the right as well as to the traditional green and, and uh, left opinion
0: absolutely Absolutely. but um but german business seems to have stepped up um as well doesn't it in this uh, case at least
1: oh yes and the greens have stepped up in fact in some ways they were ahead of the chancellor and the Socialists and the spd Um, and i and i am happy that that's the the situation in germany and other parts of europe um and i'm not saying it will evaporate but i am saying that we can't predict that it will carry on in quite the way that it has done after all that is not the experience uh, in, during the Cold War um, I mean it was it's the experience when there are events like Hungary in 56 but then by 19 by 19 uh, middle 1960s that had had evaporated
0: and then you get Helsinki in 1975 um, You've written a book, of course, about Margaret Thatcher and uh, Ronald Reagan and uh, Pope John Paul II and the way in which these three extraordinary figures came together in the same decade to help um, win the Cold War. Um, as an old uh, Cold War warrior yourself, uh, would you, um, uh, do you see, obviously the Cold War is back, yeah. but do you see, uh, how, what differences do you see between the original Cold War and this next one?
1: Uh, well, I think the uh, element of the nuclear weapons is now back on the agenda, uh, agenda more painfully than before. Because Putin has saber-rattled it. He's, he's actually hinted at threats of using them. And most of the time, that was not the kind of thing that the Soviet leaders were saying. And um, So in a sense, it's worse. In that regard, it's worse. Uh, the question then arises whether or not you think um, uh, Putin is irrational and the Soviets, and it's not the Soviets, I'm sorry, the Russians might use nuclear weapons. I've just read a very good analysis of this briefly on Twitter by the former um, Russian foreign minister, um, Kizirev, Andrei Kazirev, and he makes the convincing case, in my view, that he isn't... Um, he is not irrational. He is merely ruthless. And that from his standpoint, some of the decisions he's taken while immoral, nonetheless, they they represent um, a, 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 you know, a realistic view of Russian interests, even if a cruel one.
0: I mean, that makes – can I just um, pick you up on that? Because um, in a sense um, – that's got to be right, hasn't it? Because if we just go down the route where we say, oh, he's gone mad, then that essentially lets off entire generation of European leaders, people like Angela Merkel, who at the at the moment look terrible in the decisions that they've taken over the years, hasn't it? it
1: Mrs. Merkel looks particularly bad. And one of her advisers who, when she left office, praised her for always keeping the interests of Russia as one of her lodestars. Um, that, that, is, um, uh, that now looks particularly... Particularly ba-
0: cringe-making, isn't yeah. it? <laughs> yes,
1: absolutely. And and I think that she's probably wise to keep a bit out of the public eye for a while. Um, I think she's now lost uh, all, in a sense, authority in the party. Which, among other things, uh, one of the victims of Mrs. Merkel's policy is the Christian Democrats. They they've gone from you know, generally being in the uh, upper forties or the middle forties in public opinion polls down to the uh, middle twenties.
0: When um, we look also at a difference between Cold War One and, and the present Cold War, um, let's call it Cold War II, the uh, fact that the Russians are in a position to sort of switch the spigots off and, and, and make Europe freeze, um, that is, uh, that's a new danger, isn't it? I mean, uh, although obviously the result would be that Putin would be financially much um, less well off, uh, nonetheless, it could put a lot – you were talking earlier about German public opinion – could that be the thing that uh, turned German public opinion against this new sort of uh, vigorous phase that it seems
1: to be undergoing? I think we, the, the Germans and the, everybody else in um, Western Europe now, and indeed all of Europe, are going to have to completely change their, um, their energy policy. There is no doubt about that. Um, making net zero the focus of policy, which determines everything, net, net zero carbon emissions by 2050, that's completely unrealistic. And if it were to be continue to be pursued, it would hand a tremendously powerful economic card to to russia and to and putin um. If the policy therefore begins uh, developing an energy policy that supplies uh, reliable, cheap energy to Europeans um, um, uh, without buying it all from Germany from Russia, that's nuclear, isn't it? Well, nuclear is one element in it. I, th- I think that's right, and I think there are uh, there are technical um, there are technical improvements, innovations coming down, which will make other kinds of uh, replacement fuels possible. But frankly. Um, uh, the, the, the answer is we, we, we have to do that we have to assume that we'll be stuck with the present mix of policies which we'll gradually change from now how do we do that while keeping Russia um, at bay or not because after all if you say to the Russians we're going to pursue policies to mean that we won't be buying any of your oil well they can sell it to the Chinese at the moment the Chinese will be, provide a very tough bargain in fact one of the results of Russia Policy at the moment, um, uh, which I think um, he's Putin has taken into account, but it's a very big uh, blow. He's becoming a satellite of the Chinese. He's becoming far too dependent on them, and they don't have absolutely uh, unique. Uh, uh, they don't have a common interest on a range on a big range of things. Their principal common interest is being opposed to the West, and I agree that that's a, a powerful thing. But it wasn't enough. To to keep China and Russia together when Russia was the Soviet Union. They could be divided then and they can be divided in future. That will mean um, Mr. Putin has got to consider uh, whether or not uh, all of the things that will now go wrong for him uh, make his policy irrational. I mean, he may have miscalculated. I think he has. Uh, doesn't mean to, but the question would be, to go back, what about the use of nuclear weapons? Would he use nuclear weapons? Kazirov says he wouldn't, and I completely agree with that. Nuclear weapons deter nuclear weapons. If... Putin has realized something important, which is that if you have nuclear weapons, other people can't use them against you. But maybe that means um, you can say to a weaker a power, weaker in conventional uh, uh, military terms, we're going to come in and take over your country and your allies won't come to your support. Now, Ukraine, Ukraine doesn't have allies in the technical...
0: And it also doesn't have nuclear weapons. I mean, in a sense, it, it was a terrible mistake for Ukraine to have given them up under uh, under NATO American pressure back in the mid 1990s, and that
1: must uh, uh, and that must tell you about some of the background thinking in this part of the world. Um, when when people say um, um, why don't why doesn't Eastern Europe in why doesn't Central Europe um, be more uh, so to speak pliant and be a better ally uh, on something why why do, um, why do they not um, why do they not always in the forefront of things? The answer is because they 're going to be left out on a limb if the allies in the West leave them out on a limb, and that 's exactly what happened with the Budapest. Uh, memorandum, the British, the Brits and the Americans gave what are said to be not guarantees, but assurances. Not sure what that distinction means in practice Um, uh, of the security of Ukraine. Of course, that's been violated by uh, Putin himself. Um, But it hasn't exactly been observed um, by the by the um, uh, Americans and the Brits, I would say now they are beginning to act like genuinely true allies. I mean, the Brits and the Americans have actually delivered lethal weapons. They've done a great deal lately uh, in order, and the and the Europeans are coming round to the same thing. But frankly, um, I I have to say that there is. Um, very serious weight in the question that um, the Ukrainian president asks, which is, if we're losing the war because we don't have air power, and you won't declare a no-fly zone, um, then you must give us uh, planes to fight that war. And that is beginning to happen, but the time is short. The battle is raging.
0: And do you think that were uh, Polish uh, MiGs to be physically transferred to, at the border to Ukrainians who then used them to shoot down uh, Russian planes, do you think that Putin would be uh, justified in any way as seeing that
1: as an aggressive act from NATO? Of course not. Um, he's, he's got absolutely no... Uh, I mean, it's not an aggressive act, it's a defensive act. And consequently, um, under the UN Charter, uh, the Ukrainians are... can basically ask for people to come to their assistance, which they've done. That's legal. And secondly, um, of course, under the Budapest Memorandum, um, which he signed, uh, or rather the Russia signed, um, the the Americans and the uh, Brits are under some kind of obligation uh, to do the same. So you and and all of this results from a plainly aggressive action and an aggression which is completely illegal and which is being conducted in terms reminiscent of. The Nazis, which, um, in terms of the ruthlessness they are showing to the civilian population. So, when we look at all those kind of things, Putin has no legal leg to stand on in terms of objecting to people coming to the assistance of Ukraine. Um, and I personally agree with Kazarev that um, if the, we were to declare a no fly zone, which you could argue is very similar to the Nixon doctrine, which is to say um, if you're fighting for your freedom, you must do the bulk of the fighting, but we will help you from the air. Um, I think that is. Um, I don't. I think if. if the um uh, nato were to impose a no-fly zone and strictly ensure that any plane it shot down for example um uh, was shot down over ukraine territory to say that i'm for putin to say i'm now entitled to go outside ukraine um, um, but, is, the, but then you would
0: have um, a problem, wouldn't you, with having to neutralise ground-to-air missiles, which might be stationed in Belarus, say, or even in Russia. Right. Uh, now,
1: and that, surely... Uh, is I think a, that would be. And I think that the, I think that the only way that um, the NATO uh, w- uh, would, would actually carry out this act or be justified in doing so is if it were to keep the um, war... In Ukraine, so you, mod- you would have, in these circumstances, a war um, for Ukraine in Ukraine, um, which, uh, except for the arrival of Russian and Belarusian troops, um, nobody uh, else would be actually fighting in apart from ukrainians and To say, therefore, that you are entitled, if somebody supplies weapons, to treat that as an act of war to the the Ukrainians, a state, legal state, that's absurd. And I don't think it would have any, frankly, I think it would have no purchase on international opinion. Um, you
0: mentioned earlier that the Poles were self confident, um, certainly more self confident in a sense than the uh, Hungarians. Does this come from their history or their geography or both?
1: I think their geography in the present circumstances. Um, and they have um, their consciousness of a Russian threat as opposed to the Soviet. The experience of the Soviet threat after the war is much sharper, of course, for historical reasons. Um, and in fact, it's worth making this point because um, when Russia, uh, when Putin says that he wants to have a continuing guarantee of uh, uh, security against in its in its backyard, that might apply historically to the Poles, and it certainly would apply to Ukraine. I, I think the argument is false in a general sense, but you, but yes, he's the, the Russia did govern large parts of poles uh, of Poland for large um, t- amounts of time in the nineteenth century and before. But also, it, it applies to Lithuania and the Baltic. It doesn't State. apply to Hungary, though, does it? It doesn't apply to Czechoslovakia. In other words, they were not part of any Russian sphere of business. They were the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and. Um, and um, so his argument is, at the very least, even in his own terms, it's ex- grossly exaggerated and has no, uh, it, my view, has no value. Um,
0: final uh, question, uh, John, and thank you so much for, uh, uh, for agreeing to do this. Um, we saw the uh, tanks shelling a nuclear reactor in uh, Ukraine. You've already talked about uh, massacres of civilians, um, the, uh, the shelling of humanitarian lines, um, the possible use of thermobaric bombs and various other kinds of uh, weapons that are illegal, uh, cluster bombs and so on. Um, he seems to have um, have no line, a moral line, um, ethical line that he won't cross in this war. Have we really just... Is, is the 24th of February 2022 a new moment in the history of the West? Are we actually seeing, essentially, one of the um, great and ancient powers of Europe,
1: uh, Russia, become a rogue state? Um, we will see... Um, that when we when we um see to uh, how successful how sustained um, is the rejection of Putinism and this war his war um by Russians now at the moment um, it looks as though opinion polls show seventy percent support um, i uh, it's perfectly true on the other side that at the moment they're blocking a lot of Western information from from the Russian people and that the the official stations are all completely um, propaganda. And, well, they simply don't tell people that there is such an, an invasion. They justify an invasion without admitting what's happening on the ground. So... And I think we have to say that if there is a rejection of Putin um, by the population, it may not be overnight, um, and it may take a long time, but then then we would say, yes, the the Russians are part of our civilization. They are certainly in terms of culture, music, novels, and so many other ways. And... um, their their governing system which has been primitive for a long time and ineffective um that governing system will is will be brought into our civilization fully as well that hasn't happened um but i so you don't go along sorry you don't go
0: along with the um the idea that because russia was a democracy for a within inverted commas for a few months in 1917 and then uh a few months more under Yeltsin, that um, but hasn't been otherwise in the last three hundred years. That therefore, um, the Russians just simply aren't capable of of democracy. That they like strong men, they like czars. Uh, Putin's just the latest one. And actually, the Russians are not constitutional capable of democracy. You don't go along with that idea,
1: no. And I think that you could have made the same point about the Ukrainians, couldn't you? That they were in that same system. That was the. I mean, the. The. the um, I'm not saying that I'm making. No, a... no, absolutely.
0: And so, for the last thirty years, for the last thirty years, the Ukrainians have proved that they are capable of yeah. um, of sovereignty and uh, self government. And in a sense, don't you think that historically the argument that they are not a real country, which uh, which Putin puts forward in his historical discortations, has been totally disproved by the last 10 days i mean because because you don't fight and die for
1: something that is not a real country you don't fight and die and you don't also act in general as the i think the ukrainians have been acting which is to say bravely on the one hand uh, but also sending wives and children out of harm's way um and i i don't think they've been in a very strong position to commit terrible atrocities but we haven't heard of many maybe they're bound to be one or two because that's what war is like and it tempts people into terrible crimes but um it looks at the moment as though they are a good demonstration of people with a democratic and modern outlook and that's what everybody has been saying is true about ukraine for the last few well for the last 10 or 15 years but haven't they also been saying that about russia as well in other words people have said about russia that there is um a a new dictatorship being established by degrees um and and people could respond to that. Well, there's still much more freedom of speech and opinion and expression than there was under the Soviet time. And that, I think, was true. It's not true at this moment. But I would have said that um, the the initial reaction of Russians will fade. And then it will be – and even now – there are large demonstrations taking place against the war, despite extremely severe penalties that have been threatened. And I think you're, you have a Russian civil society in Moscow, in, in St. Petersburg and other major cities of people who travel to the West, work with the West or in the West, who have families at universities. So not just the, it's not just the bosses of the, the daughters and sons of the oligarchs who have this. There are large numbers of Russians who live in the modern world in the way we think of it. Now, their view... Uh, in a dictatorship doesn't carry any democratic weight obviously but it's there and i think that for, um, when the dictatorship has been defeated and if it's defeated in war it will probably be defeated in domestic politics as a result the way the argentinian generals were in the falklands war then i think we we will see what a genuine um a democratic russia is like and it may be sp- it won't emerge overnight, but it, I think it will emerge. After all, the article I, the article I've just been quoting to you from Andrei Kozirov,Kzerov was worked in the Soviet system until he became foreign minister. The, and we only then discovered what his real views are. Gorbachev was, rose easily through the Soviet system until he showed um, that he was something more. Uh, than that something very much more than that he himself is um, I, i've not heard anything from him in recent days but um he has refuted the idea that it was the west's expansion that um has caught co- that has uh, caused um this war so uh, nato's expansion so so i don't so i'm not, no i'm not ultimately pessimistic. I don't think that something genetic about the Russians means that they can't be Democrats. They can't live in a liberal society. Um, Every nation has had to struggle from its own history to achieve that.
0: John O'Sullivan, on that optimistic note, um, the president of the Danube Institute, Um, thank you very much for your views from uh, here in Budapest. And please join me on my next show, when I'll be discussing an entirely lighter topic, the history of the faux pas, with the novelist and humorist Christopher Buckley. Best wishes till then.